As a small child, I'm fortunate enough to live with my great-grandmother, my maternal grandparents, and my mother, deep in the heart of the countryside of Dorset, England. My mother shows no signs of the struggles that she'll later face when alcoholism will take control of her life and fling her and me around like a floppy rag doll. In fact, she doesn't even drink then. She is the quintessential good single mom. There is an incident when I am three years old. Something that is done to me in the park by older teenage boys. My mother tells me later that I won't speak afterward and just want to sleep for days. She has some friends pray for me, and apparently I get better. My mother believes she has done the right thing and the incident won't be mentioned again until I'm a teenager and start to have blurry, intrusive flashbacks. Growing up, I pine a little for Robert, the man I believe to be my father. Amazingly, Robert, whom I've only met once for a few hours when I was three, reappears when I'm nine years old, literally knocking on the door to say, hello, I'm your dad, by way of introduction. My mother, desperate to give me a stable family and perhaps desperate to believe that true love will conquer all, even a previous divorce from the man, marries him again six months later after his unexpected entrance into our lives. It's hard to know what might have happened if he hadn't come back, but he did come back and they did remarry and our lives were turned upside down my mother comes back from their four-day honeymoon in Paris and tells me, her 10-year-old daughter, that she has just made the worst mistake of her life. Robert had gotten drunk and tried to choke her on the ferry back from France. I beg her to leave him, but she thinks maybe she should just try a little harder to make it work. The incident in, in France is just the first of many. Within her, our first month as a family, Robert loses control one night, hits me, and drags me screaming by my hair up a long flight of stairs. My mother cries and begs him to stop. After that night, I keep my distance from him. Robert is an alcoholic who alternates between cold indifference and violent rage. His drinking and hitting leads to hitting, which leads to her drinking. The minister at the church my mother has been a loyal member at for years tells her she needs to submit as she walks around with a black eye. Our home is a battleground with me desperately trying to referee, standing on chairs and shouting at them to stop fighting, yelling at him to leave her alone, and finally realizing that no one is listening, spending more and more time outside of the house. Nobody notices. I feel invisible to everyone but the boys who are beginning to pay attention to me. My ideas about boys and sexuality have already been distorted. By the time I take an overdose at 13, Robert is gone, my mother is a raging alcoholic, and I'm no longer going to school. Our home is up for foreclosure, and I've begun to try to take on the adult role of providing both financial and emotional support for my mother. The suicide attempt won't change much. I'll see a psychiatrist once a week, and my mother will drink herself unconscious daily. I'll continue working as a waitress and in a factory, and will never return to school. I'll spend less and less time at home, eventually moving out, 
and will begin to have relationships with adult men that I'll think I'm ready for. I will live the life of an adult with the emotional maturity and decision-making skills of a teenager, which I am. The suicide attempt at 13 will be just one of several over the next few years. I'll learn by example to deal with my feelings by using as many substances as possible to not feel anything. I discover that it's much easier to make money shoplifting and using dodgy credit cards than it is to waitress for 18 hours a day. I'll get raped several times by the adult men I hang out with and treated horribly by the men that I date, believing, like my mother, that I just need to try a little harder to make it work. My doctor tells me that by the time I'm 16, I'll likely be dead, in jail, pregnant, or some combination of the three. He says I am a flashing neon sign for danger, for abuse, for a tragic ending, a perfect conflation of risk factors, a statistic waiting to happen. So the monologue that you just heard is um, unfortunately, I would say a pretty accurate snapshot for the backdrop and lives of many of the people um, that we um, find in the sex industry in the United States. Um, so we're gonna talk a little bit about the definition of what that is and what that looks like today. Um, and then at the end, I realize this is an overwhelming topic and so I'm glad that Laura brought up some ways to take care of yourself, but just know at the end we will get to um, some ways to be involved if you're uh, a person who gravitates towards action as a way to cope. So just wanted to let you know about that. Um, but, but what is sex trafficking and what does it look like here? Um, I'm curious, I don't know if you guys are brave enough to raise a hand this early in the morning, but when you heard the topic was sex trafficking, if any of you thought about maybe a mission field in a different country or something that's happening far away that you maybe um, thought of, I'm thinking of brothels and maybe some kind of iconic countries like maybe Cambodia or Indonesia, or maybe you thought of a movie like that movie Taken with Liam Neeson. Did anybody think about things like that? Yeah, yeah, I can see multiple hands, right. Um, and while all those things do happen, unfortunately sex trafficking is a form of organized crime that is um, taking place all over the world. Uh, we're looking at domestic sex trafficking today, um, and that's what um, January is, Human Trafficking Awareness Month around this country, uh, to bring light to what it looks like in this country. And it's something that's happening in every city and town all over our country, including Salem. So in terms of definition, and thanks for bearing with me while I have my little friend up here <laughs> getting squirmy. Um, the definition of sex trafficking is simply put, if you are under the age of 18, which is how we define being a minor or a child in this country, and you're involved in any form of the sex industry at all in this country as a child, you are considered the victim of sexual exploitation or sex trafficking. Um, if you're over the age of 18 and involved in any form or venue of the sex industry, and you're there by some form of force, fraud, or coercion, you're also considered the victim of sexual exploitation or sex trafficking. So when you hear the story of Rachel in this monologue, you're already hearing not only a bunch of risk factors, I'm sure you could all identify throughout that story, but you're also hearing how um, there's a lot of force involved in her life, there's a lot of manipulation, and you'll hear more about that later. But those are, the unfortunately, the typical experiences of people who um, we find in the industry. Um, so that's a little bit about the definition. Um, we do see those things to be true here in Salem. I'm an advocate who works with survivors here in the local area, in both Marion and Clackamas County. 
And um, in every venue of the industry in this town, I would say that many of the people who are involved are there by force for auto corrosion or their children. So it's very relevant to our community. Thank you. Just a few months after that doctor's visit, I'll meet Craig, ex-US Army, currently unemployed but with so much potential, strikingly handsome, with his huge doe eyes and high cheekbones, it will be love at first sight. Hearing his baritone voice and strong southern accent, I want to melt every time he speaks. He's funny and smart and we click together from day one. I am so enraptured with him that I'm happy to give him anything and everything he wants. Until, of course, it's no longer a choice. I love Craig with all my heart and soul and feel sure that I never have ever experienced anything like this and never will again. I think I could die for him, and I nearly do. His growing addiction to crack and my addiction to him make for a volatile combination. But in my mind, it's just the way love is supposed to be. We're Romeo and Juliet. I'm Billie Holiday, he's my man. I'm Carmen, he's my jealous lover. The one thing I never see him as is my pimp. It isn't until much later that I remember the conversations we'd had about his father being a pimp that I'd been told to call him daddy that he had twisted some wire coat hangers together into a pimp stick to beat me, that I had turned over all my money to him every night and been beaten anyway. It's not until I start hearing the stories from other girls and women that I'm able to contextualize my experiences. At the time, he's just my boyfriend, and I'm just a girl who dances in a club. So Rachel's story being common amongst the survivors that we see and work with, um, I think um, it can seem pretty overwhelming. And in, 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 if you're a person who hasn't had that kind of a life, you may begin to feel like maybe you could be um, less at risk or impervious to this. Maybe this happens to other people. Uh, maybe it happens elsewhere. And I think one of the th things that's hard to um, accept is that this could happen to any one of us. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit about how it happens, and I think you'll see um, how this really applies to all of us in terms of our um, responsibility as community members to each other, but also how at different times in our own lives we've all been at risk. Um, when traffickers are looking for people to recruit, that's what they call it, um, they do this thing called phishing or trolling, those are the, the slang terms that they use, and at this point in the world, um, they typically use social media platforms to do it. It used to be that they would go and sit at the mall, and they still do that, but that's pretty old school at this point. Um, but they, they search social media, um, any platform. It's not like it's just a dating website or some particular, it's, it's Instagram, it's you know Facebook, all the things that we use every day. Um, and they're just looking for people to befriend under the guise usually of a relationship, like you hear in the monologue. Um, but sometimes it might be something different, like a uh, modeling contract agent or uh, agent for a, like a, a singing gig, things like that. But overwhelmingly, it's usually the beginning of a relationship that looks romantic. Um, although the person um, maybe that meets the trafficker thinks it's romantic, 
the trafficker never has that in their mind, right? They know where they're going with this whole thing, which is why we call it fraud when they pull people into the industry. So they'll be fishing online and they're just looking for a momentary blip of a vulnerability factor to, uh, to raise its head. It doesn't have to be someone who has a whole litany of abuses going on. It might be something as simple as somebody's uh, Facebook you know, message of the day is like, oh, having a hard day, or got in a fight with my parents, or skipping school, right? Like little things that might tip off the fact that maybe they need somebody to talk to or maybe they're feeling misunderstood, or maybe they need friends, right? So they're looking for things like that. Um, they're also quite calculated about how um, they begin that relationship um, and where and when. Like when, when pimps go to the mall, they go during the day, right? During school hours because they wanna know who's there that should be in school, like who's skipping school? Again, they're just looking for a vulnerability factor. Um, and once they befriend them or begin a relationship, then it starts to quickly look like domestic violence or dating violence. So isolation happens, they pull them away from friends and family, um, try to make them feel like they're misunderstood by what they call the square world, um, and that they need to make some money. Although what most people don't realize as they're being pulled in is that it's not, they're not gonna keep that money, it's not theirs. Uh, the trafficker's gonna take it all. Um, so that's the beginning, and if you've ever had any form of a social media presence, if you've ever walked the mall, <laughs> If you've ever walked one of the major thoroughfares in Salem here, some major streets where pimps will look for walk, people that are walking, uh, like stopped at the bus stop on Silverton Road or Lancaster or Mission Street, right? You've actually been in a place that puts you at that kind of risk. And so really this could happen to anybody. Um, but it doesn't happen proportionately to everyone like equally if you have more risk factors. If you have are coming from a group that's been oppressed in some way, I think you do uh, definitely um, have more vulnerability factors. And so this is definitely a topic that um, we can't discuss without discussing oppression at large. And I know that Valerie's gonna talk about that in a little bit. Um, but to give you a little bit of more personal insight, so I'm a victim's advocate, I have been for 14 years and I work with survivors of sex trafficking. Also um, started my career working with sexual assault and domestic violence survivors. Um, and I have a little bit of personal experience. It's not typical, but I will share it because I think it may give you a window into how easily you might have, have spent some time as a teenager in a position that you might have been recruited in. Um, as a young person, I went off to college at 17, so super early in life, and um, my parents divorced my second year of college, and therefore I couldn't afford to go to that school. So I came home and switched up my college um, that I was going to, and was a broke college kid like we've all probably been, um, and I didn't have a lot of money for rent, so I got on MySpace. This is dating me, right, if you remember MySpace? And you may be too young to even remember MySpace. So embarrassing. But I got on MySpace and I was, um, posted a message that I was looking for cheap rent, um, and lo and behold, I didn't know this yet, I would learn this all later, a person, a pimp from Texas, uh, was trolling, looking, fishing for people, and somehow they, they friended a friend of mine and then saw my post and they did a bunch of online stalking so that by the time they ever talked to me online, they knew all about my life, all about my family, all about my friends. And so they represented themselves as a cousin of one of my friends. So I thought that there was a level of safety there that we knew each other. And they said, oh, I have an apartment and you, you could come and sublet it for me. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Well, we, we basically know each other. And um, I definitely need cheap rent, and it was cheap. So I thought, okay, cool. Um, <clears throat> turns out this person wasn't even living in the state of Oregon. Uh, but they moved to Oregon to 
create what they call, the, it's, it's called this um, for everybody, it looks a little bit different, but for me this is how it went down. It's called the breaking stage, which is where a trafficker pulls somebody into the industry. Um, so they, they moved to Oregon, they got an apartment, if you'll believe it or not, um, and I wasn't the only person this happened to, so they had a number of different people lined up that they had been fishing for, and when I moved into the apartment, um, I was sexually assaulted and sold to a construction worker who would have looked like any person you know or are related to. Like, none of that seemed, um, <laughs> even though it seems pretty outlandish, uh, the, pers the people involved were just people you'd see walking down the street and never know, right? Um, and I didn't know what to call that other than sexual assault. Um, I didn't know what to call that because I didn't have any context. It wasn't until later, when I was a sexual assault victim's advocate, I was responding to a case in the ER, and this teenager, young person told me this story about what happened to them. And it was exactly like my story. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so I listened more and she actually described the person and then named them and it was the same person. And I realized, oh my goodness, there's much more to this story. There's a whole context to this crime and it's actually organized crime. And so that's the beginning of my advocacy career in this field was learning after the fact. But the people that we work with often don't have the context. And if you don't know what to call something that happens to you other than that was wrong, you don't really know how to seek the right kind of help, right? Um, and so I think that's where it's on the community to step forward and, and open doors and name things and have conversations so that people not only understand things that maybe have happened to them, but are happening to each other and make space to talk about it and, and offer support and decrease stigma. Um, so moving forward, um, unlike Rachel's story, I had a supportive family. I was at what would have been a crossroads for someone who didn't have options and support. I happened to, and that's a lot about privilege. I had some privileges that allowed me to immediately leave that dynamic and never look back. But every person I meet as a victim's advocate in the field, every person I meet came to a crossroads at some point, right? They may have been way younger, older, the dynamics might have looked a little different, right? But they came to a crossroads and if they didn't feel like they had other options or would be believed or supported, instead of leaving and going somewhere safe, they stay and try to make the best of it. And that's where we see people, you know, six months, a year, five years, 10 years if they live that long down the road. And unfortunately at that point, they have had a lot of stigma heaped on them because if you think about it, people in the sex industry unfortunately have a lot of stigma steeped on them. So they're survivors of crimes that are then having to live the uphill battle of all the stigma that comes with that. So um, I, I, I realize my story is a little atypical, but it is how I got into the field, and I think um, it may make it feel a little closer to home, which unfortunately I think it, we have to be uncomfortable enough to realize that it, it could be any one of us. So that's a little bit about how it, how it begins. Craig is waiting for me outside the club after my shift. How much, he says. It was okay, I say, stalling. How much, Rach? Craig refuses to call me by my working name, Carmen. 600, as I turn it over to him. 600? He's upset. I knew he would be. I consider giving up the 200 I've got stashed in my underwear, but I realize I'll just get in more trouble for trying to stash, and that money's for food this week. All of his money, he'll spend on crack in the next 24 hours. 
We've been eating corned beef hash and eggs for weeks now as it's the cheapest food to buy and we rarely have money left over once he's gone on another binge. I get a choking and a smack on the side of the face hard enough that it'll show tomorrow. I was expecting both, having walked out of a 12-hour shift with only 600 marks to show for it. There are people walking and driving by, but no one pays attention. After all, we're standing under the neon flashing light of a strip club. Craig disappears off into the night with my money to score. I know he'll be back soon, he always is. Once home, Craig is busy lighting up his rocks. He'll be calm for a little while now. It's when the high starts wearing off that I have to worry. I go into the bathroom to wash my makeup off. I put a cool rag on my swollen face. And looking into the mirror, I wonder, just as I do every night, how I got here. Trapped with a man who will beat me as soon as he'll look at me. Taking my clothes off on stage every night for a bunch of men who don't care about me. I'm so numb that most of the time I try not to think about it, but I never imagined my life would be like this. I thought I'd be a lawyer or a journalist or a petite-sized model or even a teenage mom living in Portsmouth. Working at a factory doesn't sound that bad anymore. I stare at the eyes reflecting back at me, the eyes my mother had recently called dead, and I wonder if it's a premonition. I already feel like my life won't last much longer. This man will take my life, and I'm not even afraid anymore. Rach! He is yelling at me like we live in a mansion, not a one-bedroom apartment. I turn the lights off and come into the living room where he's bent intently over his crushed Heineken can, scouring for any semblance of leftover rock from the piles of ash. In a little while, he'll be on his hands and knees searching the carpet and will invariably have tried to smoke several pieces of lint before the night is over. He looks up long enough to see my face, which is rapidly swelling and darkening. Oh, shoot, baby, I didn't mean to hurt you like that. His baritone voice makes everything sound so sincere. You just gotta try a little harder and make a little more money next time, okay? I know, I say, too tired to argue. Come here, baby, I saved a little hit for you. I put the can up to my lips and, the light, and he lights the ashes for me. Within seconds, the sickly sweet taste is in my mouth. My heart is speeding up. And for tonight, dreams of ever leaving this man, this place drift away with the smoke that rises up through our apartment and out into the street. So when you look at the impact of that kind of a life experience on, on a person that isn't able to get out, that stays um, or is kept there, um, it's really significant. And I, I don't, it's hard to talk about the significant impact because it can seem pretty hopeless, but it's really not. So hang in there while I, while I share this segment because um, I feel very hopeful about it and I hope that, that you'll see that how, how hopeful it is as I share. So um, when we look at the, the psychological impact on survivors, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, um, other forms of um, attachment disorder take place, especially when they're kids, 
young kids that are pulled into the industry. Um, as a victim's advocate, I meet them after the fact, unfortunately. I, I rarely get to do prevention work. I do speak in schools, and those are interesting and very eye-opening conversations for me because young kids, like I'm talking middle school kids, share with me how they're recruited online. And they're actually quite savvy, more savvy than me about the internet, but um, it's amazing how at risk our, our young kids are. Um, but usually I do um, response work, which means law enforcement calls me to the scene in Clackamas or Marion County when they find someone who they think is a trafficking survivor um, or is in somehow involved in the industry, um, but there's an element of forced fraud or coercion going on in their life. So, you know, a lot of times I'll meet with an adult, but she starts to tell me about her boyfriend, and the more we talk, it's clear that that person's really only in, in her life to take her money. Um, so things like that. Um, and when I am, am called out, you know, I'll meet with people anywhere, on the side of the road, um, in a motel, outside of a strip club. Um, I've met with people all kinds of places. <laughs> um, and, and when I see them, it, their guard's up, right, because they, they usually have just been sort of extricated from the environment they were being exploited in. Um, but it's amazing how when you talk to a person and look them in the eye and offer them really real respect and... Um, notice all the amazing strengths about them because people <laughs> surviving things that hard are extremely resilient people. Um, it's amazing how transformative that experience can be. And I have to say, doing this kind of work is the most hopeful thing I've actually ever done in my life because when people are at really hard, really hard times of their life, I think you also see their, their dependence on each other that in ways that are really brave and courageous. Um, you see them um, dig, sort of digging deep into their own toolbox, if you will, for how to survive, using their own discernment, their own survival skills, and it's really, truly remarkable. Um, so I feel very privileged, actually, that I get to witness that kind of strength, um, it, and it absolutely affirms my hope in, in people's ability to survive. Um, but it shouldn't have to be that hard, right? They should be accepted in a community that wraps their arms around them and gives them open doors and options for healing. And there aren't, honestly aren't a ton of options, like, right? We, it's kind of bleak, actually. Um, so in terms of the impact, I would say it's really um, significant, but um, the opportunity there to change that story um, and have that be part of their past that will never go away, but part of their past and, and not their future. Um, I think that that's on all of us as a community. Stand and sway, hope you don't mind. <laughs> Mommies will understand. Um, you know, when I started doing social work, we talked a lot about things that were quantifiable, um, different types of modality of treatment. And it's not that those things aren't important, and I absolutely believe in science, but what I have found in this particular work, because it obliterates people's attachments and makes them not trust other people, because they're bought by people, like I said, that look just like you and me, right? Really makes you second guess every person you meet. Um, the thing that is transformative is love, right? It, it isn't quantifiable. Um, it's hard to describe unless you feel it, but it is the thing that, that works. <laughs> and so I stopped, you know, we, when I went through social work uh, school, they tell you not to use that word. <laughs> but I gave that up a long time ago. Um, because it is what works, and I think how we reflect love to our community as a church and as individual people, that is where the transformation happens. And if you want to try to define love, I think 
one way that I could describe it, I think, is um, being known and accepted, like really known, because I think we're all really terrified of being known. Um, but being known and accepted, I think, is a huge part of it. And as we're listening to this story today, now we know more, and I think then the next step is how do we actively pursue accepting people in our communities and looking at things like addiction differently because I know the survivors I work with often have addictions because that's a way that they learn to cope, right, just to numb out, or disordered eating, or self-harm, or suicide attempts, like you heard in the story of Rachel, um, but those are active coping skills, and people wouldn't be trying to cope, no matter how maladaptive, if they didn't have some seed of hope still in them, otherwise they wouldn't still be trying to cope, right? So looking at those things differently and, and just actively pursuing people who are in those places and not stigmatizing. Like, we can all do that. And that's something. It's more than something. I think it's really huge. So I hope you take that as, as a hopeful um, way to sort of recap. And I would say, just so you know, Rachel is a real person. And I know her, and she's wonderful. <laughs> and she's one of the most remarkable people I've probably ever met. But she runs a program now out of New York City, which is probably the world's leading organization on anti-trafficking work. She's phenomenal. And she's very full of hope. So. Hopefully that gives you a little encouragement. Thank you. Um, the next thing I think we're gonna do is I'm gonna have Valerie Gear come up. She is a wonderful friend of mine. We have done advocacy work together. She is the executive director of House of Ezer. And um, she's gonna talk to you a little bit more about how you may feel called to either get involved or um, at least if nothing else, she'll be a great encouragement to you. <laughs> Give these guys a hand. They, they just went through a lot. All right, um, my job is to talk about a biblical response and God's heart when it comes to this topic and some practical things that we can do. So we're kind of at a transition point right now, and I'd like us to take a deep, deep breath. So everybody just kind of take a deep inhale. And an exhale. Let's do it one more time, a deep inhale and a deep exhale. We're gonna kind of wake our brains up a little bit too. And if you're able and willing, go ahead and stand up. And as you stand up, just kind of remind yourself where you are. You're here at Cedar Hall. You are in a safe environment. You're around lots of women. Um, kind of lift your feet up and stomp them on the ground a couple times to remind yourself, hey, here I am, I'm in my own body, and I can feel where I am, and um, for the time being, everything is going to be okay. Plus, it just wakes our brain up, right? Okay, and um, as you're seated, if you need to take a trip to the goodies table or refresh your beverage, go ahead and do that, because I'm going to give you just a second to do that before I um, go on to my part. All right, go ahead and gravitate back toward your seats. And if you have a Bible or if you have a Bible app on your phone, you can go ahead and get that ready to Luke chapter 4. Okay, and again, before I get into my talk, I just want to say to you that... Um, the topic that we're talking about, we've already mentioned numerous times that it's a difficult topic. And um, some of us in this room may have experienced um, sexual exploitation or trafficking. But many of us have not. But we've experienced something that's kind of in the same category. 
And unfortunately, what we know to be true inside and outside of the church is that females um, have been sexually assaulted about one in, one in three to one in four. Um, and it's about one in six for boys. So just given the dynamics of a crowd of this size, there are many of us, myself included, who have experienced a form of sexual abuse or sexual assault or domestic violence or an unsafe relationship of some kind. And so I just want to remind you again that um, if you need some prayer, you need to walk, you need some space, um, right in the back there, you are more than welcome to do that. Um, and just because you get up and go over there, it doesn't mean you're saying I've experienced those things. Maybe you just need a break because we're a bunch of talking heads up here. So no, no judgment, nothing at all. Okay, I want to go on to um, talk about God's heart for justice. And one thing that is consistent throughout this book that is the Bible, that is our sacred text, is that God's heart is for those who are being oppressed, that they might experience liberation, abundant life, and freedom. If you read Old Testament law, if you read the prophets, if you read wisdom literature, as in the whole Old Testament, this is an inescapable theme. And it characterizes God, the God self. The triune God is a God of justice and righteousness. In fact, for all those Spanish speakers out there, that word is translated justicia, and righteousness and justice are translated that with that same word. They're two sides of the same coin, in other words. So the justness and rightness of God's character is the source of liberty and freedom. And of course, we see this in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And that's where I want to pick up this morning in Luke chapter, Luke chapter 4. So... Right, you guys remember kind of the beginning um, when Jesus went out into the desert and was tempted by Satan, and then he comes back, right? This is where we are at in scripture. Jesus has just finished the um, episode in the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days, and he's coming back, and um, he's gonna do something pretty radical um, that's gonna say something about who he is and what the kingdom of God is like. So we're gonna pick up in Luke chapter four, verse 14, then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went throughout all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book, or the scroll, of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, so he's quoting, right, the book of Isaiah. He's quoting the Old Testament. This is where he's reading from. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is a bold proclamation. He's saying, yeah, that's me. That's me. I fulfill that. I'm Messiah. And so this characteristic of justice um, 
that we see in the character of God, we see it throughout God's expectation of the people of God in the Old Testament. It is foretold by the prophets and fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And as we see Jesus go throughout his ministry, this is how I like to characterize his ministry. He takes those who are marginalized and makes them central. He is always doing that. The people who are on the margins, who are the most stigmatized, be it women, children, lepers, unclean, the rejects of society, that's where he goes, and he says, yeah, yeah, you're not on the side. You're not, like, not the main thing. Like, you are the main thing. I'm taking the marginalized, and I'm making them central. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news and to live that out in a way that has actual impact and real-life um, realization. So that's who Jesus is, and guess what? That's the work he's called us to, right? And so um, as we approach this topic of um, sexual abuse, sexual exploitation, and trafficking, we can know with confidence that God's heart is to experience, for people to experience healing and liberty and the full life. And that is possible through him and his ministry that occurs in community with the people of God as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Okay, the other thing I want to um, discuss is um, what is unjust what is unjust about sex trafficking? And that seems kind of like, like really, doesn't it seem obvious that that's wrong? Okay, I'll give you that. On one hand, we can all agree that that's wrong. But it's also true, I believe, that you cannot denounce as unjust that which you do not name, that which you do not know. And so I want to take a minute and just itemize and kind of list some of the inherent injustices that are present within sex trafficking as a system and as an occurrence. And once we can name what those injustices are, it gives us a better platform to jump into action. Okay, if that's the injustice, then I'm gonna go and do the opposite of that and do something that is just. It can, it can help us start to see a clearer picture of action. So the first um, injustice I wanna talk about is simply the objectification of females. Another way to put this might be rape culture, if you've ever heard of that. So we live in a system and in a culture that has some ideas about females and about their physical appearance and about sexuality and about males. And there's a lot in that system that's assumed to be true that, in fact, is not true. Uh, for example, that... Um, uh, Males can't possibly be expected to control their sex drive. I mean, that's just how they're wired. So you better not look too sexy, or um, it's gonna be your fault um, if you know they come on to you, because they can't help it, they're wired that way. Does that sound, has anybody ever heard or felt anything like that? Yeah, uh, so that's not true, <laughs> right? And we can, we can look to the scripture, and we know that self-control is something that is an expectation of all humans, and that is something that we actually can be empowered to do by the Holy Spirit, that we're responsible for our decisions and our actions. So that's just one example of um, a tenet of rape culture or the objectification of women um, that is not true. And if you kind of want to take the other side of that, we would say from a biblical perspective that all humans, whether they follow Jesus or not, all humans have been made in the image of God Therefore, the buying and selling of humans for profit or for sexual purposes is at odds with the truth that each person is made in the image of God. 
right? And this is an important point because there are many advocates out there who want to legalize the sex industry. And they, they say that it will make it safer for women who work in the sex industry because it will be monitored and controlled. Um, and you have seen that implemented in certain countries and it actually doesn't work. But um, <laughs> uh, so it, it can be really, the reason why that is never gonna work is that it's incompatible with how the Lord has made us in his image. We are not for the buying and selling. We are humans made in the image of God. Okay, secondly, another injustice that we see that's part of the sex trafficking system is the juvenilization of sex. There is an increasing trend in the sexual mores, the sex, things that are normal in our country, to um, glorify and enhance the sexuality of children. So increasingly, the age at which um, images online in advertising are being used with sexual overtones, those ages of those children are younger. And that brings us into number three, which is pornography, right? So um, I actually haven't watched a lot of porn, so I can only <laughs> really speak from what I have read. But um, I know there's a few things about porn that fuel the sex industry. One is the juvenilization of sex and the prominence and demand for sex with a minor whether you're watching it or purchasing it in another way. And um, pornography also tends to mix sex and violence together. So um, that is a dangerous combination, especially with the way our brains work. And so when you're, you have a, a whole industry that's focused on having sex with younger and younger humans, and there's mixings of sex and violence, and the demand for that is growing because of the online presence, it really fuels the sex industry. And by the way, the making of pornography, people who are in the pornographic films and images, often those are trafficked people. That is a form of trafficking. Someone is making a profit to have those people off of the people who are doing that porn. And a lot of times they're children. And so that's another kind of trafficking that, um, you know, we've talked about the boyfriend-girlfriend relationship and the process of grooming that is, um, you know, a very common story that we see in trafficking. But I've also talked with local survivors who, um, they've been trafficked by their own family members and they have been filmed as children um, doing sex acts or having sex acts done upon them or with each other. Um, and then that parent, that cousin, that whoever that family member is, maybe that friend of the family, then takes those images and puts them online and sells them, okay? Not only have those children been victims of sexual abuse, clearly, but they have been trafficked. That is sex trafficking, right? So sometimes it's a pimp who works as a lone wolf. Sometimes it's a pimp who's part of a gang. Uh, sometimes it's our own family members um, who perpetrate as traffickers. So um, all that to say the juvenilization of sex and pornography are certainly injustices that are fueling the sex industry. Okay, and um, another one I want to mention is the economic injustice of sex trafficking. Y'all, this is a, like a demand industry. It's, it's fueled by demand. If no one is buying, if no one's going to buy it, then no one's going to be able to sell it. But the truth is, it's a supply and demand industry. And when it comes to the illegal economy in the United States, and this is also true globally, there's three income earners. So if you're, you know, making money illegally, 
there's three top income earners. The first one is drugs. The second and third go back and forth depending on what city you're in as to which one makes the most profit, but they're weapons and sex, the sex industry, sex trafficking. And so this is a major part of our economy. And so seeing the systemic nature of economic injustice, who participates, you guys, who participates in the illegal economy? Who runs that? It's people who are disenfranchised who feel they have no other options. So oftentimes, it's at the intersection of multiple forms of marginalization, such as poverty, socioeconomic status, race, immigration status, um, things like that. So when you feel like you can't thrive or make the life that you want to make in the formal economy, i.e. doing things that are legal, you might choose the illegal economy. And so why you do that, behind that is a set of systemic injustices that are part of the equation. So it's kind of like, whoa, right? Um, so that's, that's a significant um, part of what I wanted, uh, a point I wanted to make. Okay, the final thing I will mention um, are, well, I actually already mentioned that, so I'm gonna go on. All right, enough said about the injustices. We've named some of them. That's certainly not an exhaustive, exhaustive list, but we've definitely hit on some big ones. Now I wanna talk about how can we respond. And before I talk about how maybe you might respond, I wanna just share with you my, a little bit of my own story and how I have responded to this. And it, <laughs> it's actually kind of a complex story and journey, so I'm gonna kind of talk about it in a couple of major chunks. So um, I'll start with the most recent and work my way back. So my family um, and I moved to Salem in 2012, right? So I'm married, I've been married for 17 years, and we have four amazing sons. And um, we came to Salem in 2012 for my husband's job. And prior to that, I was working at a university and doing work in and out of China uh, because I am a teacher trainer for teaching English to speakers of other languages. That has been my ministry career. And so I developed academic programming and credentialing at Christian universities and then also worked in Asia to train Chinese teachers of English and Chinese students who are learning English. So I've done that since like 2000, I had done that since like 2002. Um, I'm originally from Washington from Squim, Washington, out on the Olympic Peninsula. Hadn't lived there in a long, long time, so when the opportunity came for my husband um, to uh, work at Corbin University, it was a great fit for him, and we were ready to move, and we came here happily with much rejoicing to be back in our beloved Pacific Northwest. I'm a mountain girl. And so, um, and so that was great. 2012, here I am. I got couple of toddlers who are twins, got my other kids who are, you know, we had four kids in less than five years. It's crazy. It is crazy, right? But we're happy to be here. And so I, I position myself, I, I put, put myself before the Lord and I ask, Lord, how can I serve you in this community? Where do I fit in Salem? And so I just started knocking on doors. You know, I did a little adjunct work, little interim work at Corbin. I've always taught classes there. And um, I helped with RTI and get that started and wrote some courses for them and taught for them. I helped at Broadway Life Center for a little while and taught some English to adult language learners and um, just did a bunch of stuff, pretty much running around, making myself exhausted, not earning much money, but trying to say, okay, maybe the Lord will show me through these opportunities where I fit. The only problem was is that I knew deep, deep, deep in my core 
there was a major change occurring in my life. And I describe it like this. You know how when there's an earthquake and there's two giant plates deep below the surface and they shift, and then there's an earthquake that occurs because of that shift? That plate tectonic model is exactly how I described feeling at that stage. Something major in the deep essence of who I am is shifting, and it's going to result in a change in my ministry and calling. I just don't know what it is yet. <laughs> I just don't know what it is yet. And it was um, really, really hard. Okay, so that was happening. The other thing that was happening um, was that I was processing through in a new way and in a deeper way my own experiences as a thin, blonde female enculturated in evangelicalism in the United States of America and what that meant. And I was sort of processing through um, so many different episodes of growing up, things that had, people had said to me, things that boys had said to me, things that men in the church had said to me, things that women had said to me, experiences that I'd had. I was very involved in um, short-term missions as a youth, and so I've, I've been on five of the seven continents. I've not been to Africa, and I've not been to Antarctica, but I've been on all five of the uh, five, and I have been sexually harassed on every single one. And um, when you're, I mean, it can be true for any female, but um, Hollywood and, um, you know, that culture has certainly for many years perpetrated sort of a, uh, a really sexualized version of what it means to be thin, blonde, and female and American. And so I felt like I had to contend with that wherever I went. And um, it wasn't until I was 37 years old, I'm 40 right now, that I realized as well, and I processed through the fact that that guy that I thought was my boyfriend when I was 21, and that like I just made some bad decisions, I realized, oh, he groomed me, he targeted me, he groomed me, and he took my virginity and left me with an STD, and I thought it was my fault for just not catching it. Like, like not realizing what was happening, and I thought I was in control, or at least, um, you know, I chose to go out with him, therefore I had responsibility for my own actions type of thing. And it wasn't until much later in life, at this time, that I realized I had been targeted by a sexual predator and groomed. And I was 21 years old, and I'm educated, y'all. I got my doctorate, just graduated with my doctorate, okay? So it is a humbling and embarrassing feeling to realize that as an educated young woman, you were groomed and raped and didn't even know it. And so I was going through that. So that was the second strand. And then the third and final strand I will mention is this. So I have this like little orange rocking chair in my bedroom. And um, I'm not really a morning person, so I can't function without my coffee. So my blessed husband gets up with the children, and he makes me coffee, and I sit in my chair, and I come before the Lord with my coffee, and I rock, and I sip my coffee, and I bring myself before the Lord in prayer. And so that is my custom and habit. And I was always telling the Lord, I'm just, you know, what are you saying to me? Here I am before you, Lord. Show me what you want me to do. Um, I'm really struggling with anger about this whole sexual objectification thing. Just the other day, I was walking my dog in the neighborhood, and this truck went by, and this guy stuck his head out and hollered at me. And I'm just so mad about it, and I'm hurt, and la, 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 all that stuff. 
I bring that before the Lord and just tell him that's how I'm feeling. And I pray, Lord, what do you want me to do? Something doesn't seem right. Where, where are we going with this? And as I consider my life, the Lord begins to remind me. Um, I've worked in higher education since the year 2000. And one consistent part of that career, even though it has never been my formal job to be a counselor or a mentor, I've always been on the faculty or in, on the staff in student life in some capacity, I have always been a safe person for young women to seek out and share what they want to share. And a lot of that has been of a sexual nature. So sexual abuse, sexual assault, um, decisions or relationships that they've been in that they've been trying to process through that maybe aren't safe or desirable, shame, all of that. So that has been a consistent thing that's been part of my life um, no matter what stage it's been in. And so out of this time of sort of, these are the three chunks that are going on in my life right now, and I'm daily before the Lord in prayer. Um, one day in prayer, the Holy Spirit clearly speaks to my heart and challenges me to ask him to um, basically give me a ministry, a vision for a ministry for survivors of trafficking. And um, I had been reading a lot about trafficking, so I knew a little bit about it. And so um, the Lord put on my heart a vision for an aftercare home um, that would offer services to sex trafficking survivors. And it's called the House of Ezer. And you can read on the website um, later what that, why I picked that name. But um, the vision for the House of Ezer is to be a place where survivors can engage in longer-term aftercare that's focused heavily on um, a couple of components. One, um, out connection with the outdoors and with nature through gardening, through Newfoundland dogs. You guys know what Newfoundland dogs are? They're the big, fluffy, giant teddy bear dogs, just like the, the, um, the Nana dog in Peter Pan. So um, an outdoor adventuring through hiking and engaging the beautiful wilderness of the Pacific Northwest. And I won't go into all the psych theory behind that, but that's one of the experiences that is central to the vision of the House of Ezer. And the other is um, a strong engagement with the arts. And I'm going to use the term the arts very broadly to mean anything from poetry and creative writing to um, painting, music, and any, anything, really, that would fall into the category of, of, of arts. And um, finally, like uh, the physical component that could be actually in the outdoor part or in the arts of emphasizing inhabiting one's own body safely and different yoga exercises and ways of being in one's body um, that can help people who have survived sex trafficking. Um, a lot of times they, they disassociate with what is going on in their body because it, they have not been allowed to feel or it hasn't been safe for them to feel and to be present. They've had to go somewhere else and they've had to remain in a hypervigilant state. And so to slowly come back into one's own body and, and sort of be there um, sounds kind of like a basic con concept, but it's actually quite powerful um, for those who are recovering from complex trauma. So I went back to school. My twins went to kindergarten, and I went back to school. I thrive in formalized space, so I went back. Um, uh, I went to seminary, and I got a doctorate, and a doctor of intercultural studies with a program focus on sex trafficking here in Oregon. And I just graduated. Yay! <laughs> so, um, so, my calling and the way that I have chosen to respond is kind of 
um, I wouldn't say, oh yeah, you guys should all like quit your jobs and go back to school. Uh, I mean, obviously that's completely unrealistic, although who knows, maybe somebody might feel that that way. But that's um, how this is playing out in my life. And the House of Ezra is um, a new 501c3 that we founded. Um, it's not even been a year ago. So we have a board, we have our nonprofit status, we have our vision, we have our website. And if you want more information or you would like to get involved, you can sign up on our website. And it's on the um, handout I gave you. So with that said, get out that handout that's on your table. And at the top of it, I just want to take about five more minutes or so and um, talk about ways that you might respond. So at the top, you can see what can I do about local sex trafficking? We've had a very um, verbally heavy presentation. So you're doing a really good job hanging in there. And I'm gonna save us the I'm not gonna read everything on this page, but I am gonna summarize a couple of really important resources that I wanna to bring to your attention. Okay, <clears throat> so one thing I wanna acknowledge is that throughout this presentation, you may have come to consider your life and your experiences in a new way. And you might say, you know what? I never really realized that I um, needed to address some of the things that have happened in my life. I didn't know that I was trafficked, or now that I, I, I hear this topic, I can see that I'm not well about the sexual um, assault and things that have happened in my own life. I want you to know where to go and what to do and who you can call and how you can get help if and when you're ready. And there are two resources I wanna tell you. They're on, they're on your paper. I think they're at the bottom, or maybe in the middle. Okay, the first one is the Center for Hope and Safety. The Center for Hope and Safety, they have, let's see where I have it here. It's um, under Educate Yourself, it's item 3B. The Center for Hope and Safety has a 24-hour crisis line. They focus on domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking. They um, are not mandatory reporters. So when you call the crisis line, and you're seeking help, they do not contact the police. If you have a child, they don't contact um, the Department of Health and Human Services. Because they are a, um, a women's, basically, safety place, that is a, a, a spot in the law where women can go without fear of any kind that their story will be heard or passed on, okay? And so if you wanna talk about that in your life or you know someone and you're not sure what to do and you need advice, you yourself can call that line, okay? And um, the other thing I want to say is that they certainly do work with really great organizations in our community for children. So like the Liberty House, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that. So um, when it, that bridge might need to be crossed for there to be intervention to support a child who's experiencing um, sexual abuse. Support is in place for that and those referrals will be made. I don't wanna give the picture that they um, don't do anything about childhood sexual abuse. I just want you to know that it's a safe place and that they will not make you um, call anyone else. Okay, the second um, resource I wanna tell you about is the one just above that on your handout and that is Safety Compass, right? So Esther, who presented up here earlier, um, you guys, she comes with a lot of experience in this field, and she pioneered the work in the Portland area, the Sexual Assault Resource Center, and now in Marion and Clackamas counties, and she's amazing, and she knows her stuff. So Safety Compass works exclusively with um, people who are being sexually exploited or trafficked, right? 
Center for Hope and Safety is a general catch-all for domestic violence and sexual assault. And they actually, they work really, really closely with Safety Compass so that if anyone calls their line who's experienced sexual exploitation, they get in touch with Esther and Safety Compass. And Compass means navigation, right? So Safety Compass is navigational support for people who are being sexually exploited. How can they get help? What are their needs? Um, that kind of thing. So um, they also have a phone number and a 24-hour line on there if you need to call that line or if you are in relationship with someone or talking with someone who you think might benefit from um, this information. And maybe they're not ready to exit, maybe they are, but it's important to be able to know where to refer them. And so Center for Hope and Safety and Safety Compass are two really important numbers. Okay, and the other thing I wanted to um, draw your attention to on this page is everyday activism. And this will be the last thing that I share before I hand it back over to Laura. So I provided you with some local organizations. You can go to their website, you can volunteer, you can check that out. I provided you with some educational materials, some books to read, some websites to visit about local sex trafficking. Um, and I would encourage you if that's um, you know, an itch that you got, go ahead and scratch that and go there. That's awesome. Um, but I wanna also talk about everyday things that you and I can do and that maybe we already are doing that are radical forms of activism to help um, counter sex trafficking and the culture that fosters it. So, um, number one, it's really important that we are people who can listen and believe children, youth, adults, women, when they say they're experiencing an unsafe situation, right? Rather than minimize it or try to say, maybe you misunderstood it or no, that's not really happening or we don't wanna go there, Right? We can say, I am so sorry that you experienced that. I believe you, and I'm here for you. To acknowledge that they have suffered an injustice and something that's wrong and to be supported and believed is huge. Okay? Number two, to live out safe relationships in our own communities and in our own families. To be a safe person in your family, to be someone who fosters healthy relationships, to be somebody who looks out for the individuals who might be a little bit on the margin um, for whatever reason, whether they're children or adults, and inviting them in to the safe relationships that you have and that you are part of. That is a really, really important thing. So um, a lot of us in here are moms aunties, grandmas, and we know children or have children that are either at the middle school age and above or gonna be entering that very soon. And um, it's a really, really critical age um, because we struggle with self-esteem anyway at that age, right? And you throw in a couple other vulnerability factors and the reality that a lot of kids have mobile devices and have social media and it is all too plausible <laughs> that um, someone that you know and that we know and that's part of our families and our neighborhood could be um, targeted by a trafficker. And it's usually an older boy, 
um, who again takes an interest in the girl. Oh, you're so pretty, you're so mature for your age, you're so misunderstood. Oh, I totally support your dreams to become a singer. In fact, I know a guy in, you know, my cousin who lives in such and such a place, he has a recording studio, you know, just stay with me, I'll protect you, there, you know, that whole thing it actually can happen really easily. So to be aware of that and to be inviting those young people into your home, into your community, to your church, to programming, so that if they have questions or have something going on in their life, that they know they can come to you and ask and that you're gonna be there for them and that um, you're going to include them. Okay, I've said enough. There's more on the sheet and I will be available after um, we close here if you have any other questions that you would like to talk about. So um, at this time, I'd like to invite Laura up. Pastor Laura is going to lead us in a time of reflection and prayer and waiting on the Lord as we consider um, our response.